thank you guys for having me. And on behalf of my wife and I, we just want to say thank you guys for the opportunity to be here. A lot of special things happened for us here in Kearney. We had our first child here. We also paid off our, our student loans here in Kearney, uh, which was a big, like a huge blessing for us. And as, as Scott mentioned, we have our second child on the way, and this was unplanned. So <laughs> this was, <laughs> you, I was, yeah, I was pretty surprised. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Mackenzie, she, she called me when I was in the office and said, babe, I'm pregnant. And... I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> and as she's telling me, she's, she's panicking, and I'm like, you know, God is going to take care of us. You don't need to worry. And then she asked me, and she says, you know, uh, are, you, are you worried? Are you panicking? And then I, I tell her in a very calm voice, no, babe, I'm cool. You know, God is good. But on the inside, I'm just, I'm shaking. I'm shaking, but God is good, and he, uh, he continues to show his faithfulness to us. And yes, we are going back to the East Coast. Uh, if, for some of you who don't know, I'm, our, our, our family, we are from Philadelphia. And uh, yeah, we're going to head back. I, I found a good gig, a, a good gig there. Um, to be with. And also, it's, it's one of, you know, it's something that we did want because uh, uh, we, our family is expanding and it's nice to, you know, be with a uh, family back at home. So, again, we want to say thank you guys. Uh, Carney will always play a very special place in our hearts. So, God bless you and God keep you guys. So, let's dig into the Word of God. We're continuing our series in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1, the book of 1 Corinthians, but we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 31. And also, I'd like to say um, good morning to those of you who are in the venue. I'm sorry, I forgot about you guys. And also, good morning to you guys who are watching us online. We love you. All right. So let's pray and let's dig into God's word. God, we thank you for this day that you have given us. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that you have allowed us to be here. Lord, I pray that you would help us to uh, gain insight into your word and what your word is saying for us today. May we be encouraged by your word Oh, Lord, help us not to simply be doers. Well, help us not to simply be um, hearers of the word, but doers of the word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians. I want to read it for your hearing so, so that we all have context. And Paul says in verse 18, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to serve, to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those, but to whom, but to those, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. And I want to make a con- confession because, you know, I'm leaving and, you know, you guys will never see me again. No, I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> I want to make a confession. So I can't swim. You know, I, I, I never learned. And the, the issue is that when, when someone tries to teach me how to swim, it's never really effective. Uh, I, I remember last summer, my, my wife, uh, we went back uh, to Philadelphia and her parents had to have a pool and she was teaching me how to swim and it just wasn't working out. And it's maybe be because I'm not a good student, but there was one day my best friend from college, he was actually, um, we were at his house and he was trying to teach me how to swim. And as he, was trying, as he was teaching me how to swim, he was teaching me how to paddle my, my legs, and he was teaching me how to, you know, pump, pump my arms. And, you know, as I was in the pool, I was doing well when, when I was placed in one spot. But at some point, my friend told me to swim from one end of the pool to the other end of the pool. And as, and as he, so, so, I, so I agreed. So I said, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. You know, he's, he's been teaching me. I feel like I can make it. But here was the problem. So as I launched from one end to, so as I launched from one end of the pool, I, I was able to keep my arms going and I, I was able to keep my legs moving. And for some reason, when I got to the middle of his pool, which was the deepest part of the pool, I began to panic and frantically move my body, and I was actually on the verge of drowning. And my best friend, as I was looking at him, and I was trying to say, save me and save me and save me, but he was looking at me and laughing. (laughs) But in my mind, I was saying, dude, I'm (laughs) I'm really about to die. And at some point, he stepped in just like a scene in Baywatch. You know, he, he swam and he picked me up and he saved me. 
And here's the, here's the thing, the moment I veered from what was essential, the moment I veered from the fundamentals, the moment I veered from what was most important was the moment I began to focus on the wrong thing and I began on, on the verge, I was on the verge of drowning. And I tell you this story because the church of Corinth, they also took their eyes away from the power of the cross by focusing on the messengers of the cross more than the message of the cross, as Jordan taught us last week. And as a result of them taking their eyes away from the message of the cross, they had a misguided trust in human wisdom and eloquence. And don't you know that the promise of Scripture is that when we keep our eyes on Jesus, there is blessings for his people. In Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3, it says, you keep him in perfect, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. But then also in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. So if Jesus is the, fi- 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 Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, and if we are keeping our minds on him, he's the one who sustains us, and he is the one who keeps us. So what the Paul does here is that Paul points them back to the cross of Christ, by, remind, by reminding them that without the power of God, it would have been impossible for them to be saved. So to, today, my, my brothers and sisters, I encourage you guys never to turn your eyes away from the message of the cross. So here's the direction of the message that we are going to be hearing today. And here's the direction of the sermon here. Today, we will look at two reasons to never take your eyes away from the cross of Christ. The first reasons why we should never take our eyes away from the cross of Christ is because the cross reminds us that it is the power of God that saves. In verses 18 and 25, that is what we are going to see. But then also, we never take our eyes away from the cross because the cross of Christ gives us, gives you and I, godly confidence. Again, We never take our eyes away from the cross because the cross reminds us that it is the power of God that saves, but then we never take our eyes away from the cross because the cross of Christ gives us, gives you and I, godly confidence. So now let's look at how the cross reminds us that it is the power of God that saves. Never take your eyes away from the cross because the cross reminds us that it is the power of God that saves. Let's look at verse 18 and 19. Paul says in verses 18 and 19, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the, intelligent of the, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. So, in order to really understand the full scope of Paul's argument, we need to look back at what verses 1 to 17 says. So, in short, as Jordan preached last week, Paul reminds us that God's work of salvation in their life is all a result of God's work. It's not a result of what is not a result of anything that we have done or anything that we have said. It is solely a result of God's radical and powerful intervention. Yet the church in Corinth, 
They got distracted and divided over giving their allegiance to teachers who taught them about the gospel and began fighting one another, placing more emphasis on the teachers than on Christ. So in verse 17, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom or eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. But what Paul is telling them is that it's not people who possess great intellectual prowess or rhetorical persuasion that provides the gospel with power. It is God's power that brings people to faith in the crucified Messiah, in Jesus. So the demonstration of God's power is his ability to save sinners. So when we get to verse 18, Paul continues to basically accentuate or highlight this point here, that this point that it is only through the power of the gospel by saying that the gospel doesn't even make sense to people who are perishing. In, 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 in other words, the gospel is nonsense to unbelievers. If it's nonsense, if the gospel is nonsense to unbelievers, then it requires all the more God's intervention to bring sinners to him. It is by grace through faith that we have been saved, and it is Jesus that keeps us by his grace. So Paul what he does here in verses, in, in the following verses from verses 18 to 19 and 20 and 21, is that what, what he's doing in the scripture is that he's supporting his argument about Christ being the one who's able to save through the Old Testament or, or, in, uh, or in other words, scripturally, experientially, and historically, and this is what we are going. This is what we are going to see. The death of Christ is the power of God, and no one can be saved apart from it. Therefore, not the smartest or most eloquent human can be compared to his power. And Paul demonstrates this point in in, in three ways. He shows us in verse nineteen that this point is supported through the scripture. So, and he he quotes an Old Testament passage of scripture. If you look on your paper, there, it says. Uh, Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14, and it says this, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. So why is Paul saying this? What Paul is doing here is that he's driving his point that the gospel basically surpasses human wisdom. It surpasses our wisdom. The wisdom and intelligence of this world what he's saying here is that it does not compare to what Jesus did for you and I on the cross. So in that sense, God destroys or he frustrates the wisdom and the intelligence of the world. The reason why Paul talks about the wisdom and intelligence of this world is because the church back then in Corinth held, high, held in high esteem the teachers who were deemed as intellectually superior and had great public speaking skills. So what Paul is doing here is that Paul wants, wants to basically destroy any 
and all confidence that they had in those teachers and highlight the fact that God does not need human intelligence to make the gospel effective. It does not need any, the gospel does not need any external entity to basically augment its potency or in other words, the gospel is powerful in and of itself. And this is something that we should praise God for because it is not a result of anything that we have done. It is not a result of anything that you have done. It is not a result of how beautiful you are. It is not a result of how much money you have. The fact that God steps into your life is a result of his grace and it is a result of his mercy. It is a result of him lavishing his love on you. So through wisdom, so through human experience, you see in verse 20, Paul says this, where is the wise person? He asks, and Paul is asking four rhetorical questions here. And he says, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And basically, Paul, he's asking four rhetorical questions, and the first three answers being a nowhere to be found. Where is the person? Where is the wise person? Nowhere to, to, to be found. Where, so where is the wise person in regards to Christ's wisdom, in regards to what he has done? Nowhere to be found. Where is the teacher of the law? Nowhere to be found. Where is the philosopher of this age? Nowhere to be found. And the last question he asks, it says, has not God made the foolish, uh, has, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And the answer is a resounding yes. God has made the foolish, God has made the foolish the wisdom of the, of, of the world. In, uh, in other words, what, what is Paul trying to say here? The wisdom of this world does not compare to the infinite wisdom of God through Christ. The cross of Christ surpasses human wisdom and understanding. But then if you keep on reading in verse, 20, 20, in, in verse 21, it says this, uh, For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So what is Paul saying? What is Paul saying here? The wisdom of God is the cross of Christ. When Paul says the world through its wisdom did not know him, it means basically that the world, that they re rejected him and that, they, that, and that they hated the message of the cross dismissing its power. The very thing that they utterly hated, the very thing that they minimized, the very thing that they rejected and downplayed was what God used and still uses to save people from darkness. And God, God is happy when he's able to prove the naysayers wrong. God will always demonstrate his power to those who minimize him. But then as, as you keep reading in verses 22 to 25, as you see in your sheet, it says this, Jews demanded signs and Greeks looked for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both, both, uh, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, 
And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So the Jews and Greeks of that time, they were looking for what they wanted in a savior. For the Jews, it was someone who was able to yield tremendous social and political power. And for the Greeks, it was someone who was well-versed in being able to teach in such a way that gives compelling arguments for them to believe. But the thing is that Jesus did not fit in any of their mold. And that's why the cross was a barrier or an obstacle or an impediment to both parties. That's why the cross was was a barrier to the Jews, and that's why the cross was a barrier to the Greeks. Yet, in God's mercy and in God's grace... He still calls those who despise him and those who do not trust him. And herein lies the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is in the fact that God can save. And if you think about your own life, and if you think about your past, and if you think about where you were before Christ, it is only, as you reflect on your testimony, it is only a result of the power of God to save you. And there's a story in the Bible, a story of Peter, when the disciples, they were in the boat. And as they were in the boat, Jesus, and as, as they were in the boat, uh, there, there was a storm. And then Jesus calls Peter to come out of the boat. And then as Peter is walking, Peter loses focus. And as Peter loses focus, he begins to drown. And as Peter begins to drown, he he cries out and he says, Lord, save me. And as Jesus looks out on him with compassion, and as Jesus looks on him in his grace and in his mercy, Jesus reaches his hand out and saves Peter. And this story teaches teaches us that no matter how much or no matter how bad you feel like you are drowning no matter how dark it may feel in your life God is never too far to reach out his hand to save us it is only a result of God's power it is only a result of the cross of Christ that these people and that and and that we are saved today no one else can do it and no one else will but God so we are, never, we are never to take our eyes off of the cross because the power of God saves us. And we are never to take our eyes off of the cross because the cross gives you and I godly boldness. We're never to take our eyes off of the cross because the cross of Christ gives us godly confidence. So what Paul does here is that Paul continues to highlight his argument pushing them to remember that the power of the cross is what saves them, is the power of the cross. The power of the cross is what, is what, is, 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 is what saves them. But what does Paul mean in verses 26 to 31? If you keep looking and if, if you keep reading in your pamphlet there, in verses 26 to 29, it, it says this. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. So Paul is reminding them of of where they were before Jesus. 
And he says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lonely things of this world and despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And he says, so re- remember, in the previous paragraph, what Paul, Paul ends with emphasizing the fact that the power and wisdom of God in the cross of Christ and the fact that it's not human power and ingenuity that saves us, but Christ. But then Paul tells them that they were not elite. None of them held power. None of them were members of the aristocratic party. They were just regular people in society, and God saved them. Therefore, it wasn't human wisdom and eloquence that saved them, but Christ crucified. And God used people who others thought of as uneducated during that time or intellectually inferior or powerless or worth nothing, the the nobodies in society, to come into his kingdom. Why does he choose people that are on the outskirts? God chooses people that are on the outskirts so that no one would have the opportunity to brag and say that it, is, it, that, that it was because of something they did to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It is so that God would receive the glory. It is so that God would receive the praise. It is so that only God would receive the honor. But what did God do for you and I that prohibits us from arrogance or that cautions, cautions us or, or that cautions us from being arrogant or thinking that it's something that we could do in order to be saved. It's something that we can do in order to receive the favor of God. Let's look at verse 30 and 31. Verse 30 and 31 says this, it is because of him that you are, that you are in Christ Jesus who has become the wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, our holiness, in our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What does it mean that Christ has become the wisdom of God? In, in, in their time and in their culture, as we see in verse 17, wisdom was such an essential component of their life, yet they did not understand. So Paul points them to true wisdom that prohibited them from arrogance, that prohibited them from speaking as if they had something to do with their salvation, as if they had something to do with being recipients of God's grace. And this is what Paul reminds them. Paul reminds them that they have Christ's righteousness, that they are holy and that they have been redeemed. And all of these are things that Paul emphasizes that God has done for you and I. In other words, we do not have the ability to do these things on our own. You don't have the ability to be righteous on your own, or in other words, to be made right with God. The only reason why you are right with God, the only reason why you have been justified 
is a result of God doing that for you, is a result of God stepping into your life. So right, right, righteousness means that you are made right with God. Right, righteousness means that there is no enmity between you and God and that you can have a relationship with, with him. And this is a wonderful, miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. This is a wonderful, miraculous work that God has done for us. But then not only does Paul remind them of their righteousness, but then Paul says that they are holy. You and I, we have been made holy. In other words, holiness is God sanctifying us. Holiness means that he has washed our sins away and that he helps you and I to become more like him. But then not only that is is that uh, God has redeemed us. God has redeemed you and I. And what redemption means is that God has set us free from sin and darkness. All of these Things are our holiness and our redemption and our righteousness as a result of what God has done as a result. Therefore, since as a result of what God has done, we have no reason to boast. We have no reason to claim anything. So to conclude, to boast in Christ means that at the core, at your core, at my core, We are tied to Christ and nothing else. If you are linked to Christ above anything else, then that means we take the risk to trust Christ with everything. And if we trust Christ with everything, then that means that he has the first and final say. And Paul's emphasis in this chapter for them to keep their eyes on the cross was birthed out of a context of division within the church. People who lost sight of the essential fact that the cross of Christ is what saves. And in our culture, over these past years, and and I'm sure years prior to this, as I've gotten closer to the church, not just in Kearney, but the church at large, I've seen people in in the church divide over issues and forget their true allegiance to Christ. And as we keep our eyes on the cross, we will not only look to our own interest, but also to the interest of others. Let, Let us pray. Lord, I thank you that you have saved us. Lord, we confess the moments in our life when we have forgotten you. We confess the moments in our life, Lord, when we have forgotten your word. When we have forgotten what is most important. Your word says, Lord, when we seek you, we will find you.
when we seek you with all of our hearts. Lord, thank you for saving us. Lord, I I pray for the person in here who feels like they have lost their way. Lord, I thank you that that nothing can pluck us out of your hand. Lord, I thank you that there's nothing that we can do to move out of your hand, Lord. God, we confess the ways that we have forgotten you. We confess the ways that we have missed the mark. Lord, restore our fervency for you, for those who have lost their fervency. Lord, I pray that you would ignite a passion for us, Lord, as a church, as a people, to focus on the cross and rely on you. Lord, we can't do anything without you. And we acknowledge that today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.